Daniel is the Old Testament commentary on Revelation. So as we study Revelation, we also study Daniel to get more depth, more detail. Tonight in Daniel chapter 8, we've called it going back to the future again because God typically takes us to the back to help us understand what's going to happen in the future. And so let's pray and we'll get rolling, all right? Lord, we sure thank you tonight for the chance to be together. Lord, thank you for teaching us about the future by taking us to the past. Would you help us tonight, I pray, to understand all that you want us to, most of all to be transformed. Lord, by what we hear, help us to, God, I pray, live increasingly on mission, knowing that we live at the time of the end. A time of transition is never before known in human history. Lord, we know that your coming is near. Would you help us to be faithful, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 8. Welcome again back to the book of Revelation, our exciting study. Now listen, I've said before that you can't study Revelation without also studying the book of Daniel. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So you have the New Testament commentary to Daniel, that being the book of Revelation. You have the Old Testament commentary to Revelation, that being the book of Daniel. So they really are companion books to fully understand the one You've also got to study the other. So instead of Revelation, I want you to go back to the book of Daniel today. Daniel chapter 8 is where we're going to study. Daniel 8 is a vision that I'm convinced is incredibly relevant for the times in which we're living. Look at Daniel chapter 8 and verse 17. It says, So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, we can all agree that we're living in the time of the end. We're living at the end of time as we know it, shortly before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This vision of Daniel 8 is referring specifically to the time of the end, the very time in which you are I am living. I'm convinced we need to learn the vision of Daniel 8 because it is so relevant specifically to the days in which we live. One of the reasons I can be absolutely convinced this book that I hold my hands really is supernatural. It really is the word of God, not merely the word of men. Is because over and over again, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, God has made prediction after prediction, prophecy after prophecy, century, centuries ahead of time before it happened. And over and over again, we can look back through the lens of history and we can prove it happened exactly the way God said it would. Now, if uh, one or two is right, or maybe even two or ten, one could argue, well, that's just coincidental. I mean, that just happened accidentally. But honestly, prophecy after prophecy, we can prove, happens literally every time precisely. I'm telling you, eventually, you can only come to the conclusion that has to happen supernaturally. Could not have happened any other way. Couldn't happen just coincidentally. This prophecy of Daniel 8 is no different. Daniel is going to make some prophecies 
that it happened um, exactly as he said it would. He predicted it centuries ahead of time, yet we can prove it happened literally. That's why we can say with confidence we can trust the Bible. In a world of people who say the Bible isn't true, it's just a world of, you know, word of men, it's just made of, uh, you know, myth and folklore. Listen, we can say emphatically it is the only book on earth that can boast multitudes of fulfilled prophecy. That could only be done, honestly, supernaturally. Couldn't be done any other way, in any other capacity. Now, in Daniel 8, we're going to see what I'm convinced one of the most amazing prophecies of Scripture. In Daniel chapter 8, this prophecy concerns three different world rulers that would arise. Now, as Daniel is writing this about 555 B.C., none of these world rulers have emerged yet. Yet we can look back through the lens of history, and what we're going to see is that two of these world leaders that Daniel predicted have come, and one is yet to come. So Daniel 8 is a prophecy of three world leaders, two of which we can prove have, have come, exactly as Daniel prophesied ahead of time, and one is yet to come. The first two, in some way, prophetically foreshadow the last one. Let's pick it up right here in Daniel chapter 8, as we are introduced to the first two world leaders. And then we're going to spend some time studying the third. Look at Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, a vision appeared to me, to Daniel, after one that appeared to me the first time. I was in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, that may not make any sense whatsoever. Obviously, um, God is speaking here through symbolism once again. But what you've heard me say over and over again is the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Wherever God uses symbolism, there's going to be a biblical interpretation, no reason whatsoever to take a guess at it of your own arbitrary opinion. So what do we do? We start searching Scripture. In this case, it's real easy. God himself is going to define this vision in the very same chapter of the book of Daniel. Flip down to verse 15, and God's going to give Daniel the vision, the interpretation specifically of what Daniel has now seen. Then it happened, verse 15, that I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning 
that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw um, having the two horns, these are two kings, Media and Persia. And the male goat, the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, your four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Takes all the guesswork out of it, doesn't it? And what we just learned here is that the ram he sees represents the Medes and the Persians. We know historically, once again, we have the opportunity to look back through the lens of history to define this prophecy. We can see it happen literally exactly the way Daniel said it would. You have the Babylonian Empire, and Belshazzar is currently on the throne in verse 1. He, of course, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the founder of the Babylonian kingdom. And what Daniel now sees is a ram that will overthrow the Babylonian kingdom. This ram has two horns. And defined for us, these two horns being the Medes and the Persians. It began as the Medo-Persian Empire. We know that the Medes and the Persians came together to form one people in common conquest. But then what do we learn? One horn outgrows the other horn. And so this ram has one horn, and one horn is lifted higher than the other. And that is why history remembers the Persian Empire specifically. In the history books, you don't hear a lot about the Medo-Persian Empire or the Medes and the Persians because very quickly the Persians would outgrow the Medes to begin dominating the world. And this is exactly what history records, exactly what Daniel recorded before it happened. Uh, the horn did indeed grow larger than the other, and the Persians quickly did outgrow the Medes to dominate the world, and they would indeed dominate the world for 200 years. They would be the uh, absolute world power at this time in history, and the Persian Empire would last for a full 200 years, and just as Daniel says, no one could stand before uh, this ram. They dominated the world thoroughly the uh, complete monarch of the ancient Near East. But then what's he see? He sees, I see a goat. And this goat had a notable horn. This goat begins to make war against this ram. And he sees this goat. And of course, who came after the Persians were the Greeks. And the Greeks represented by the great goat with a large horn between his eyes. What do we just read? The large horn represented the first king. Well, who would that be? You've heard of him. Everybody's heard of him. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, first king of the kingdom of Greece. And he comes against this ram, and you just read what happens, exactly uh, the way God said it would. Of course, all this is happening historically between 334 and 330 B.C. As Alexander the Great makes conquest of the entire known world, he confronts the Persians. Go back to verse 5 and look at what it says in verse 5. Look at what Daniel says regarding... Uh, this, um, this ram in Daniel chapter 8. 
regarding uh, this ram and this goat. It says in verse 5, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, the direction of Greece from Persia, and across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. This goat is moving so swiftly, he appears to not even be touching the ground. Here's what's interesting about the Persian Empire. They were known for their brute strength, their force. They had a 200,000-man army. The remarkable thing about Alexander the Great is he left Greece with a very small army. 30,000 men was going out to war against 200,000 men. Alexander was way outnumbered. He did not have the brute strength of the Persian army, but this goat was moving so quickly, so swiftly, he appears to not even be touching the ground. Alexander was known for his quick strikes because he had a small army. They could move very, very quickly. And uh, he, he, he employed a blitzkrieg type of military strategy where he would hit his enemy quickly and then move and then he would counter quickly and he could flank his enemy. And so he was known to move so swiftly, so quickly, and that was his strategy militarily. And so this goat is not even touching the ground. He is moving so quick and so fast. Now look at verses 6 through 8. Look, that's exactly what happens in history. Uh, if you look in verse 6, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing between the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. And he cast him down to the ground and trampled him there. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from behind him. So he conquers the Persian Empire, and the Greeks become the uncontested power of the ancient world, the absolute world superpower, the monarch. But what happens? And you probably know because Alexander the Great is such a prominent person in history. At the age of 33, when he should have been the strongest he's in life, just coming into his prime, Alexander unexpectedly dies. And what happens? Verse 8 tells us what happens. Now remember, Daniel's writing this before it happened. He's writing this over 200 years before it would happen. It's easy for us because we look back through the lens of history. Daniel doesn't have history. He's, he's sharing prophecy. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of the heavens. It's exactly what happened. When he was very strong, at his strongest, the height of his strength and power, Alexander died. And what happened? Four notable horns grew up in place of that one horn. And we know what happened after Alexander died. His kingdom was split four ways between his four generals. And the Grecian Empire was then divided uh, among these four horns, north, south, east, and west. God clearly gives us the interpretation of Daniel's vision. No reason here whatsoever for speculation or imagination. Go down here to uh, verse 19. God tells us exactly what Daniel is seeing. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what should happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, these are the kings of Media Persia, and the male goat is the king of Greece. The large horn which is between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn, and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. That's exactly what happened then 
uh, with the Grecian Empire. It was then divided four ways. Now, all of this is a matter of historical record, yet Daniel has written this before it happened. It's one thing just to understand what happened historically. It's another thing to predict history before it happened. Daniel is writing this roughly in 555 B.C., 200 years before the Greeks would even emerge onto the world scene, a full 15 years before the Medo-Persian Empire would emerge to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. I want you to see this book I hold in my hand has about a 3,000-year-old track record that every time it predicts something is going to happen, we can prove it literally happens. Now, two-thirds of this Daniel 8 vision has happened historically. What do you think that says about the remaining third of this prophecy? Can we trust what God has said he's going to do? Well, we certainly can trust what God has said historically he would do. We can prove it happened literally. You see, that should give us confidence. When we look at prophecy that is yet unfulfilled, and we can look at all the prophecy that has been fulfilled, it ought to give us confidence in the prophecy that is yet unfulfilled, that it's going to happen exactly the way God said it will, because over and over again, what God said, God actually has did. Now, you've seen Alexander the Great. I want you to see another leader uh, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 9. Now, he's one of the Grecian kings that would emerge from the four kings that divided Alexander's kingdom. Four generals uh, actually went to war for Alexander's kingdom. In the end, they divided it four ways. And the descendants of one of those kings, this is man known in history, is Antiochus Epiphanes, a Grecian king that ruled the land of Israel in the intertestament period uh, after um, God had not spoken for 400 years, those silent years in between the testaments. What was going on? Well, Israel was being subjugated by these Grecian kings, and one of them specifically, Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at verse 9. And look at what it says here in Daniel chapter 8 regarding uh, this king specifically. It says, And out of one of them, those four horns, a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, speaking of Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as, as high as the prince of the host, meaning Jesus, uh, the prince, the king, uh, meaning he's proclaimed himself a deity. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away meaning the Jewish sacrificial system. He banned in his uh, time uh, the Jewish religion, the Levitical system. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, the Jewish worship and Levitical system. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, Forty-two, uh, four, 
2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, we need to know here, and I want you to understand that this prophecy was fulfilled historically, partially, in Antiochus Epiphanes. This is what was happening. You can read a little bit about this in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. In the intertestament period, the Maccabean revolt, where the Jews revolted and rebelled against Antiochus Epiphanes and his rule. And temporarily, they won their freedom. Um, but I want you to understand that the final fulfillment prophetically lies not in Antiochus Epiphanes, but in the Antichrist, the one that in some way he foreshadows will one day come. He, he was a vicious ruler. You can see why Antiochus Epiphanes is such a picture prophetically of the Antichrist. This man was a vicious persecutor of the Jews and a vicious persecutor of the Jewish religion. He ruled Palestine from 175 to 163 B.C. He's one of the last rulers of the Grecian Empire before the Romans would come and knock off the Greeks as the ancient rulers of uh, the ancient world. Now, the historical figure known as Antiochus Epiphanes is without question a prophetic foreshadow of this world ruler the Bible calls the Antichrist. Uh, Antiochus was a vicious persecutor of the Jews, and check this out. In 167 B.C., he outlawed Jewish religion, exactly what Daniel says the Antichrist will do. In Daniel 9.27, he cuts off the temple worship and the temple sacrifices. We just read about it right here. And on December the 16th, 167 B.C., he sacrifices a pig, a sow, an abomination to the Jews on the altar in the temple. And not only does he sacrifice a sow on the altar in the temple and sprinkles the blood of that sow in the Holy of Holies, but he erects an altar to Zeus on the bronze altar, that pagan god of the Greeks. It was an act of complete defiance against God and a complete defiance against the people of God. Now, Here's the reality. Much of biblical prophecy has a dual fulfillment, a double fulfillment, as I said. All of that was a partial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. But it's pointing prophetically, foreshadowing a future and final fulfillment of this prophecy uh, that will happen in the tribulation. Specifically, what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, 15. Listen to what Jesus said. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Jesus said that a full 200 years after the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. So clearly Jesus could not have been referring to that abomination of desolation, the one committed by Antiochus Epiphanes. He's referring to a future abomination of desolation, another leader who will desecrate the temple in a similar way. See, he was speaking to his disciples 200 years after the death of Antiochus. So clearly, Jesus was teaching what Antiochus Epiphanes did, and that part of history would have been known to every first century Jew. It would have been a part of history that every Jew was entirely familiar with. That Antiochus Epiphanes, that former ruler, the way he desecrated the temple, and the way that temple was eventually cleansed in the Maccabean Revolt, the disciples would have immediately understood what Jesus was referring to. They would have immediately understood, wait a minute, there must be a future desecration, a future abomination in some way that is similar 
to this past abomination. You see, there is a future event coming that Jesus called the abomination of desolation, where the future rebuilt Jewish temple will again be desecrated by the Antichrist. And how does he do it? In some similar fashion. Only instead of setting up an image to Zeus, the false prophet, according to Romans 13, sets up an image of the Antichrist in the Holy of Holies. And he is worshipped under penalty of death. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen, it says this, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And we're living in that falling away, the great apostasy of the church, a turning from truth. And then that man of sin will be revealed, that son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Make no mistake about it. There's coming such a man the Bible calls the man of sin, the son of perdition. Revelation 13 calls him the beast. He's known in 1 John chapter 2 as the Antichrist, just as Jesus is the Christ. This in some way will be Satan's Christ. He's an Antichrist who opposes the work of Christ. Revelation 13, 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And just the foreshadow of Antiochus Epiphanes before him in some way, he too will be a vicious persecutor of the Jews. He will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem midway through the tribulation by erecting an image of himself, proclaiming himself to be God. And then he'll be worshipped as God. Revelation 13, 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I preached three messages out of Revelation 13. I'm not going to rehearse that here. You need to go online and listen to those. But I'm convinced the image, this is the word icon in the Greek, in some way, this is a clone of this man, Antichrist. Now he is empowered by Satan. He is literally Satan in the flesh, as Jesus was God in the flesh. And Daniel predicted such a man. Now, the fact that two-thirds of this prophecy of Daniel 8 has been fulfilled, let me tell you, it gives me no doubt. The last portion of this prophecy will also be fulfilled when the Bible prophesies a coming world ruler. Now, where will this world ruler come from? Well, if indeed Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes prophetically and doctrinally are foreshadowing the Antichrist, well, it tells us a little about where he comes from, doesn't it? These two men were Greeks. They were Grecian conquerors. They were Grecian kings. Tells me we ought to be watching the country of Greece. Now, we know he'll be a composite. We've done former lessons on who he is, where he will come from. We know he'll be a composite type of person, like many of us don't come from just one nation. We have a mixed ethnicity. He will too, but we need to be looking at the country of Greece. By the way, Greece is going through bankruptcy. Their economy is completely broken. Historically, where do dictators come from? When does a dictator emerge? Historically, dictators emerge out of economic cataclysm, when people are hungry and in poverty. And it makes a lot of sense when you look at the country then of Greece. Now, there are signs that the fulfillment of this prophecy is already in motion. Now, the fact that 
um, Daniel 9.27 tells us that the sacrifices will cease, tells us there must be a rebuilt Jewish temple. The fact that Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, the Jews know exactly what that meant. He's referring to another abomination of apparently another temple that must have been rebuilt. Obviously, there must be a rebuilt temple. And we said, I think, in the last lesson how even now things are in motion for the rebuilding of that temple. And one day there will be a peace treaty brokered by the third person, this third world leader prophesied in Daniel chapter 8, who will allow them then to rebuild that temple, who will then betray them and break that peace treaty, declaring himself God. He'll sit then in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2, where he will be worshipped as God, Revelation chapter 13. Now look at Daniel chapter 8. Let's learn a little bit more about this coming leader who is to come, prophesied by these two figures in history, in some way prophetically picturing him. Uh, look at what it says here in verse 23. How does he emerge? How does he come to power? It says, And in the latter time, their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce countenance, who understands sinister schemes. So he emerges to power through sinister schemes. Uh, the implication here, I think, is more than uh, just being sinister, but rather even satanic, uh, satanic uh, schemes, satanic conspiracy, satanic uh, powers. And we can see even now in some way how this this is emerging, um, how Hitler himself as a dictator, and he would be a world dictator, it's well known that he was uh, in the occult and he had dabbled in occult power. In some way, uh, he will emerge through occult power and sinister satanic type power and maybe uh, black magic. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we see so much... Um, people dabbling in the occult and this uh, type of teaching of Deuteronomy 18 specifically of having nothing to do with seances, having nothing to do with those who call up the dead, having nothing to do with spiritism or demonism. You know, God tells us to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. There's no in-between state whatsoever, yet we're living in a time of New Age mysticism and New Age theology. First Timothy 4 and verse 1 calls it doctrines of demons. Uh, and we're living a time of just that, doctrines of demons, deception all around us at all times in various ways and various fashions. Listen, we need to be filtering everything through the Word of God, uh, the truth of God, if you don't want to be deceived. Uh, it's imperative that we learn to filter everything through God's Word. Because I'm telling you, there are two kingdoms colliding in our day. There are two world orders, we might call them. Uh, you're either in the kingdom of our God or the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist already here. Now look at verses 24 and 25 re regarding the Antichrist. Unlike his predecessors, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Speaking of the Jews, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. 
He shall even rise against the prince of princes, speaking of Jesus Christ, and he shall be broken without means. Uh, here's the reality. Daniel 9.24 tells us he emerges peaceably, much like what it says in some way right here, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. So he comes under a banner of peace and prosperity. He brings peace to the Middle East. Uh, he in some way will bring peace to the pandemonium economically worldwide uh, through the rapture. There's going to be economic cataclysm with the fall of the U.S., Every other economy is tied to the U.S. economy with the fall of the U.S. currency. Every other world currency will fall with it. It's going to be absolute worldwide pandemonium financially. But you know what he's going to succeed in doing? Not only bringing peace to the Middle East, but he's going to unite the world currencies. According to Revelation chapter 13, it's going to be a one world economic system. And so initially it's going to be peace and prosperity for everybody. But we know how this thing's end. I mean, midway through the tribulation, uh, he breaks that peace treaty. He rides on the world scene on a white horse under the banner of peace, a bow but no arrows. But behind that white horse, you remember, is a red horse rider. He will usher in warfare and bloodshed because of it. In some way, he will demand here to be worshipped as God himself. He will exalt himself, it says, in his heart. And he will come against even the prince of uh, Jesus himself. In some way, he will pass himself off as a Christ-like figure. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 5, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. We know in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, he'll have supernatural powers to do signs and wonders. But the Apostle Paul said lying signs and wonders. In other words, he will deceive masses of people through supernatural miracles and powers, miracles that lie. And for people seeing as believing, they will follow him and begin to even worship him because he will have God-like ability and God-like appearance. He will claim in some way to be the Christ, yet he will be the Antichrist. He will counterfeit Christ. He will oppose Christ. Now, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in our world, preparing the mindset of humanity. It's already among us. Even in John's day 2,000 years ago, as John wrote these words here in 1 John 2 and verse 18, the spirit of Antichrist is already among us. It's already at work in the world. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So while we're not living in the tribulation, and I don't believe we're going to know who the Antichrist is until the tribulation, it's imperative that we understand the spirit of Antichrist and where the spirit of Antichrist is at work. John told us how to identify the spirit of Antichrist. How do you reckon and how do you watch for the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist, John tells us, is any spirit that denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And you can begin to see how that spirit is permeating our society. And even Western civilization, which was once the stronghold of the church and a stronghold of Christianity, the spirit of Antichrist is here already. A spirit of Antichrist that says Jesus was just a man. Jesus was just a rabbi, not a redeemer. Jesus was just a carpenter, not the Christ. 
Spirit of Antichrist that says the, the resurrection was a hoax. It's not real history. Spirit of Antichrist that denies Christ's supremacy. The Spirit of Antichrist that says all religions lead to heaven, that Jesus is a way, or maybe even my way, but he's not the only way. Friends, that is the Spirit of Antichrist. And that is how you begin to recognize a false spirit at work in the world. And a false spirit is at work everywhere, even in some churches and many churches that claim to be Christian, but they deny biblical inerrancy and they deny Christ's supremacy. You know right away that's not the work of the Spirit of God. If it denies the Word of God and if it denies the supremacy of the Son of God, you know immediately. You're not dealing with the Spirit of Christ. You're dealing with the Spirit of Antichrist. And it's everywhere. Because as I said, there, there are two kingdoms colliding. Two world orders. I use that term, new world order. You know why? Because it's the, the term that people are now using. 1992, first ever U.S. president to use this term. I'm sitting in my dorm room as the first Persian Gulf crisis is emerging. And we've gone to war against Saddam Hussein to depose his administration as he had invaded the little country of Iraq. And on international television, he uses this term, a new world order. First time a U.S. president ever used that term. Now, I don't know for sure how he meant that term. But this much I'm sure of, there are two world orders. And you are a part, even now, of one of two world orders. There's God's kingdom and there is Satan's kingdom. And these two kingdoms are indeed colliding. These two kings and these two kingdoms are opposing each other right now. And you are right now either embracing the truth of God or the lies of Satan. And when you reject the truth, all that is left is the lie. And I'm telling you, lies are everywhere. Lies are all around us. And when you deny the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're giving in to the spirit of Antichrist and you're believing a lie. And the reality is that puts you not in God's kingdom, but rather in Satan's kingdom. You now stand in opposition against the world that God is making. You're now on the side of the world that Satan is making. Here's the reality. Even now, you're part of one of these two world orders, God's or Satan's. You'll serve one of two kings, either Jesus or Satan. Every king has a kingdom. Jesus has his, Satan has his. Which kingdom are you in? You're either a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are a slave to Satan. John 3:18. Jesus said this, He who believes him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Have you trusted in the name? Of Jesus Christ to forgive your sin have you given your heart to him if so you're a part of his kingdom and you're not condemned but if not sweet friends listen if not you're condemned already today is the day of salvation put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will forever be saved set free I love you so much hope you have a really really awesome day let's dig in and make sure we are a part of the right kingdom Daniel chapter 8 you know, it's down a little bit like I didn't realize this because I shoot these like, you know, two months ago before we actually see them. I think I said something similar this morning that I just said up there about, you know, two kings and two kingdoms and 
you're going to be a slave of one or the other. I promise I'm not smart enough to do that. <laughs> I promise I'm not smart enough to think that far ahead. And by the way, you can see you're, you're looking at the unedited version because Saddam Hussein did not invade the little country of Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, he, he led the little country of Iraq and invaded the little country of Kuwait. So anyway, I sit back there going, oh. <laughs> but, uh, but that happens, you know, when you're kind of in the heat of it, you don't realize what you said. Oh, gee, I said that. So anyway, so Daniel chapter 8, questions, thoughts, comments. You can see why it's so relevant. You can see why it really, really helps to study the book of Daniel when you study the book of Revelation. Now, last summer I did 10 lessons or 10 sermons through the book of Revelation. We called it kind of the flyover, the flyby, uh, kind of the highlight reel. I spent three weeks of that 10-week series in Revelation 13, so we're not repeating that here. But if you haven't seen those sermons, I really encourage you to get online and check those out. They're still online. You can click on it and uh, listen to three sermons from Revelation 13, because we're actually going on in Revelation 14 and beyond. And as we study in Daniel 8, the Antichrist, there's so much more to share and so much more to see from Revelation 13. But you can see historically why these two Grecian leaders prophetically foreshadow this coming king, this counterfeit king of this coming kingdom, Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. And I don't think it's... Uh, coincidental at all. I was in Athens, Greece a few years ago, amazing trip, and we did kind of a footsteps of the Apostle Paul kind of trip. And I was in Athens, and of course that's where Mars Hill is, and that's the place he preached in Acts chapter uh, 19, and just an amazing time as we went down to the ancient Agora, and that's where you know he was in the marketplace disputing some of the Greek philosophers, and they brought him up then to Mars Hill, and that's where he preached uh, to uh, the Greeks and, you know, made mention of this altar to the unknown God and even, you know, quoted one of their Greek philosophers trying to make the bridge of the gospel to that Greek audience, right? But it's amazing to me, but not coincidental at all, that Athens today is the gateway out of the Middle East into Europe for 50,000 Arab Muslims a month. 50,000 Arab Muslims a month go through Athens on their way into Europe out of places all over the Middle East. And so it makes a lot of sense in some way to me when we've talked about the fact the Antichrist will be both European and Arab. And uh, he'll be a composite type of person, the perfect kind of person, the profile that will be able, I think, to bridge both East and West, to bring peace in the Middle East between uh, Israel and her enemies, and uh, he'll have a, an Arab uh, ancestry of some type coming through Greece, and we can see how Greece here is associated with the Antichrist and his coming kingdom, with these two rulers from the ancient world that prophetically foreshadow a future ruler, could be just maybe, he'll be maybe a second or third generation European, perhaps Grecian with Arab ancestry. Just maybe, I don't know. But you can see us here in Daniel 8 starting to put together kind of a profile. And so uh, that's Daniel 8. What, what do you want to talk about tonight? Questions, thoughts, comments, anybody? Yes. Hang on just a minute. Jeremy's on the way. 
I have a lot of people ask me, and these are believers and non-believers that aren't familiar with prophecy, why does the whole world except America want to destroy Israel? So I, do, I always, of course, we know Satan does, but what would be a good explanation that they would understand? Why does the whole world except for America want to destroy Israel? And what is amazing to me is, honestly, in the last 20 years, we've seen even the U.S. start to distance itself from what was once a staunch ally position, a staunch friend of Israel, because of our Judeo-Christian heritage, traditionally, we're strong defenders of Israel. Uh, but even re more recently, until this present administration, uh, Donald Trump, who I personally don't know whether he has a personal conviction one way or the other about Israel, but uh, whether you like him or not, he at least does what he says he's going to do. He felt like he owed uh, the evangelicals. He said, I'm going to bring the embassy to Jerusalem. By gum, he's the first U.S. president that did. And uh, the reality is he's not the first one to promise it. Bill Clinton promised it. He didn't do it. Uh, George Bush, uh, the second, promised it. He didn't do it. I don't think Barack Obama ever said anything about it. He was the only smart one. <laughs> At least he didn't promise to do it and then didn't, right? And so here's Trump. He finally does it. And, uh, you know, what, what is the significance, though, of, um, you know, prior administrations? And really, just look, at, uh, just look at the news media. Just look at how the average American now views uh, Israel increasingly, much like Western Europe, as kind of the big bad bullies of the Middle East. Uh, when we went last year to Lebanon, a mission trip to Lebanon, they told us, listen, before you even get off the plane, you need to know something. As you talk to these Lebanese Christians... You need to know, no, don't even mention Israel. Don't even talk about Israel. And these are Lebanese Christians. Now, you and I as Christians, uh, we love Israel. Most of us love the Jews. How can you not love the Jews? Jesus was a Jew, right? It seems impossible not to love the Jews if indeed you're a Christian. We have a Jewish Messiah. But these Lebanese Christians who madly love Jesus, listen, they have a whole different view of Israel. You know why? Because they're at war with Israel, have been since 2007. Hezbollah, the terrorist organization, began shooting rockets into Israel. Israel responded, uh, and they declared war, and technically that war has never ended. And so you can see why, in most parts of the world, uh, Israel's not viewed there the way they are here. And we can talk about all the political reasons, uh, but the reality, and you heard me say many times already, uh, we're looking for political answers to spiritual problems. You see, behind the scenes, there's always the counterfeit king that's pulling the strings behind the scenes. And we can talk about all the political reasons over there that Israel can't seem to get along with her neighbors. And we can talk about, you know, the Palestinian divide with, you know, peace for land and all of this stuff. But the reality in the end is Satan hates the Jews. Satan hates Israel. And consequently, we see the mindset of humanity turning against Israel. Western Europe has turned against Europe. Uh, and honestly, the U.S. in some way is the last bastion of hope for Israel. We, we are still the last defenders of Israel. Now, why would the world turn against Israel? I mean, when you understand honestly what's going on here, and I'm not saying you should blindly support every decision the Israeli government makes. There's a lot we don't understand from this far away uh, to just blindly support whatever Israel does. That wouldn't be wise either. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, Israel simply responds to attacks from without, right? Uh, they have said never again. They remember the Holocaust. And their enemies that literally live next to them have sworn their destruction. Iran has sworn their destruction. The PLO has sworn their destruction. The truth is they don't want peace and they don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. Palestinian state and a non-Israel state. And so, um, you know, the, you have the, the tangible, political, practical reasons why the world seems to be turned against Israel. But the reality is the spiritual powers that are pulling the scenes behind the st- strings behind the scenes. And so what happens if the Jews suddenly went away? Let's say that Hitler was successful in World War II. And in some way, Hitler was a forerunner of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist will declare a holocaust on the Jews. And that's what happens in Matthew 24, as Jesus says... Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation, he basically told the Jews, you better hid for the hills, you better not even go home. Uh, you better hid for the caves and the rocks and the dens, and they will hide in the Judean desert during that time in this future coming tribulation. He said it's going to be basically a time of tribulation. Remember what Jesus said, such as never been seen from the beginning of the world, nor will ever be seen again. Can you imagine the Holocaust that will take place during the tribulation, if you're a Jew, that would make the Nazi Holocaust look like a Sunday school picnic. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, what would have happened? Let's think about this. Why does Satan so desperately hate the Jews, and he is even now pulling the strings and turning the mindset of humanity against them? What would have happened had Hitler succeeded in completely annihilating the Jewish race as a people? Remember, he killed over six million of them. What would, have, what would have been the implications? There would have been no witnesses. There would have been no Revelation chapter 7. No 144,000. What else? The Bible would be full of false prophecy. All the promises God made to the Jews, remember God promised that he was going to scatter them abroad for their idolatry. He was going to scatter them among the nations, and then he promised one day, I'm going to bring you back again. Now, why did God promise to one day bring the Jews back again? I've told you recently, I'm not going to do all the work for you anymore. I can just tell you, but I don't want to just tell you. I want you to think. I want you to connect the dots. Why are the Jews... Even today, though we're Gentile followers of Jesus, and the church today is largely Gentile, why are the Jews still so instrumental to God's plan for a kingdom? Dave. (laughs) Go ahead. There'd be no Israel at all. Yeah. Yeah. There'd be no Israel at all. With, with, if there is no Israel, if there are no Jews, guys, listen carefully. There is no such thing of a king who doesn't have a kingdom. See, for thousands of years, Satan tried to stop the king from ever being born. And this is why the moment he realized that king, the seed of Genesis 3.15, is going to be born of Abraham's seed, he immediately began to assault Abraham. That little thing with Hagar, 
Do you think that was just, you know, Abraham kind of spaced off for a minute, went in, slept with Hagar, had this illegitimate child. Do you think that was just kind of a, you know, a hapless random moment for Abraham? Gee, kind of blew that. What was going on behind the scenes? What was he trying to do? What was Satan trying to do? He knew that Abraham was the carrier of that promised seed that would give birth to that promised king. He knew that Sarah and her womb was to be the one that would give birth to that promised seed and that promised king. Her womb was barren. What does Satan do? Hey, Abraham. Maybe Ishmael. Maybe he's the one. But of course, Ishmael wasn't the one. And then Isaac is born, the promised seed, yes? And then what happens? He has a son named Jacob. And what happens with uh, Jacob? He he uh, goes to uh, his father, uh, Uncle Laban's, right? Remember the story? And he has 12 sons, and God says, listen, that son Judah, he's going to be the one that's going to carry this promised son. So you've got Abraham, and then you've got Jacob, and then you've got Judah. You remember Genesis chapter 38? What happens with Judah and uh, Tamar? Remember that? What, what happens with Judah? What does he do with Tamar? His daughter-in-law. He sleeps with her, thinking she's a prostitute, not knowing that he's sleeping with his own daughter-in-law. And from that sinful union, guess who's born? A little boy. That would be in the messianic lineage. What was Satan trying to do behind the scenes? He was trying to what? Disqualify that promised seed from being that promised king. You see, all along the way, he's trying to stop that seed from being born. When Jesus was finally born, you remember what Herod does? He finds out where the little baby boy was prophesied to be born and finds out it's Bethlehem. What does he do? He kills all the baby boys under two years of age. He wants to stop that king, that seed. He wants to snuff it out. He knows that king, that seed, is a threat. Now, He couldn't snuff it out. He couldn't stop that seed. So what does he do next? Well, if I can eliminate the people of the prince, then the prince doesn't have a people. A king that comes doesn't have a kingdom, right? God made certain promises to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Promises made specifically to the Jewish people. There's the big debate theologically. The big debate theologically is the church Israel. Have we replaced Israel? And uh, you guys already know how I feel about it. I think the scripture is emphatically clear. God made an eternal covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17, he makes a covenant with him, calls it everlasting, an everlasting covenant. Guys, how can a covenant be everlasting if it can be broken? See, everlasting means Everlasting means forever. And so the fact that the Jews rejected their Messiah the first time does nothing to break this covenant that God made with Abraham and his physical descendants. God made Abraham specific promises and his descendants specifically that he aims to keep literally, not allegorically, not symbolically, not spiritually. And here's the reality. If the Jews are not a people and they are not in the place, then the king can never come because God cannot fulfill those promises that God promised he would make. You see, ultimately, he'd be a promise maker and also a promise breaker. 
And that is why the Jews are so central to God's plan for a kingdom that will be without end. You see, only then, with the Jews in the land and the Jews occupying that piece of real estate God gave them, can the kingdom finally come to establish that kingdom that will be without end? Because only then can God fulfill all the promises he made them in this coming kingdom that will one day come. We call it the millennial kingdom. Uh, historically, the Jews have never occupied all the land. If you look in the land grant of Genesis chapter 15, it would stretch from the Mediterranean on the west to the Euphrates on the east, from Lebanon on the north to the Nile on the south. Now, historically, they have never, ever occupied the entire land grant given to them. Uh, the closest they ever came was in the days of Solomon, and even then they didn't come close to the Euphrates. And so here's the point. Unless there is a millennial kingdom where the Jews are in the land, God can never fulfill all the promises he made to Abraham. You can see why Satan wants to destroy the Jews. Short questions, no short answers. I'm sorry. Anybody else want to share anything about that? Say anything? I don't have to do all the talking. You guys have a lot to share. I know you do. Uh, it doesn't matter, Jeremy. You go where you want to. We'll matter. get to everybody okay. eventually. This is just a comment. You know, so often we try to put God in a little box of our understanding so we can kind of really... I'm sorry. <laughs> I talk with my hands, sorry. too. That's why <laughs> anyway, we're this. <laughs> we try to. But this, what you've just told us, reminds me so much that first, God is all-powerful. Satan did not, could not, never will mess up God's plan. That's right. And second of all, God is a promise keeper, people. Amen. What he's promised us, he will deliver. That's right. What he promised, he will perform. Glory to God. It's good preaching. Good preaching. Well, I was going to answer that long question that you just answered. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to put my two cents worth in. <laughs> Bring it on. Come on. Well, I was just reading yesterday and getting pre preparation for the Journey Junior Kids in uh, Deuteronomy. And I saw that God was saying to Moses to tell his people that he was, in the later days, he was going to separate them all out, even though they were about to go into the land from coming from Egypt. So they were about to do that. But God was already telling them the prophecy of what would happen eventually to the Jews and that they would scatter. And then, but because he was merciful and because he kept his covenant, he's keeping his covenant with the forefathers that he made it to, the Abrahamic covenant, that he was going to bring them back to the land. And so then I, it, you know, it has cross references and it's all in the Bible all the time that they're going to come back and that he's going to keep the covenant because he loves the Jews and it's a covenant. You can't break a covenant. That's right. You can't break a covenant. A covenant is different than a contract. What is a contractual agreement versus a covenant? Somebody? Anybody? What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? A contract is this. If you do this, I'll do this. See, our salvation is a covenant. It's not a contract. What does it mean when it says we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself? It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, we're in a covenant relationship. It does not hinge on our work that we do for God. 
it hinges only on God's work and that he's done for us. That means our work, no matter how sinful it might be, cannot undo Christ's work. And that's why we believe in something called eternal security. It does not hinge on what you do. It hinges on only what Christ has done for you. Here's the reality, guys. If what God told the Jews can't be trusted, then how can we trust what God has said to me and you? I mean, maybe it does depend on me. Maybe I do need to work for my salvation too, see? See, the nature of God is always that when he makes a promise, it is an unconditional covenant he makes. It does not hinge on your work. It hinges on God's work and most specifically God's word. And so when God made this promise to Abraham, it didn't hinge on what they would or wouldn't do. Now, here's where the confusion comes theologically, guys. When you know you have come the divide theologically, the in-house debate within the church about uh, you know replacement theology has the church replaced Israel. You know, once one side says, well, uh, the Jews rejected their Messiah; they crucified him, and so the church has now replaced Israel. And the church now inherits all those promises of Israel. And normally they go to Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, what it says is not all Israel is actually Israel. That those who are Jews in the flesh are not necessarily Jews spiritually. Uh, and so what is he saying? It, it, he says we're all the seed of Abraham. In some way, we're the sons of Abraham. Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3. What is Paul dealing with there? What's he teaching there? Is he teaching that the church has replaced Israel or that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews? What's going on there? We've been grafted into God's family. It's exactly right. Uh, spiritually speaking, we have been grafted in. One body, Jew and Gentile. He's not saying God has eliminated the promises he made to those Jews physically. He's simply saying, now, praise God, the promise and the blessing of Genesis 12 has come upon all nations, that you and I now are recipients of the salvation offered by the Jewish Messiah. Yep, right here, and then back here. Jeremy, sorry. We're going to keep you rolling tonight, man. Run, 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 run. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Or right here. You go. Um. Because, you know, when uh, we're told that we're adopted, we're adopted sons of God when we believe, that I found out that when you're adopted, you can't be disclaimed. You can, cannot divorce your parents. They cannot divorce you. Once you're adopted legally, you're bound to the people that adopted you and vice versa. Legally, it's as though you're blood, flesh and blood. Go, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm kind of on the same page with her. What's always bothered me is, and it took me a long time to understand this, is the lineage of Christ and how they say he comes through, you know, eventually through Joseph's line. But Joseph adopted Jesus. Therefore, that's us. I mean, to me, it's like Christ was adopted in his family, even though Mary's lineage is there too. But when you really think about the adoption part of it, to me, that is the most powerful thing you could ever hear. And for, for Mary to have been a virgin and for God to have created Jesus like that to show us that no matter what, we're part of his family mm -hmm. and he can adopt us in there and hold us and love us just as much as 
biological parents would. To me, there's something said there. Isn't that glorious? Yeah. Yep. Romans 8, 17. If children, then joint heirs with Christ as the children of God. The adopted sons and daughters. Yep, David. Jeremy, you need some help tonight, man. <laughs> you need a partner out there. Uh, um, I just want to tell everybody in here uh, speaking tonight about adoption, um, how much it's meaning to me. Uh, the years I spent away from the Lord and looking at my life, and I know I'm not the only one in here who's gone through this. Um, very young uh, missionary parents and living in Germany and taught to love the Lord, becoming disillusioned. But uh, coming back and reading the Bible and becoming familiar with it again, the fact that our salvation is utterly and completely in Christ and what God's done. Um, just everything you've said tonight, Pastor and two wonderful ladies on the other side about adoption being grafted in, the humility that goes with that. Um, I love you all, and thank you for ministering to me tonight. Amen. Glory to God. Isn't that fun? Isn't it great? Anybody else? Yep. I'm just curious. When you were in Greece, does the church in Greece accept that prophecy like what you were talking about that possibly the Antichrist will come out of Greece or Europe? Well, I didn't actually talk to anybody about it <laughs> while I was there. Here's the, the reality, though, with the church in Greece. Um, so it's Greek Orthodox, about 99% Greek Orthodox, which is um, about 99% Roman Catholicism. And so um, they're, they're, in this case, guys, they're religious but lost, Okay. They've been baptized but not born again. In other words, it's very much a works and ritualistic and ceremonial type of salvation. And, and uh, unfortunately, that's the condition of the church in Greece. So it's about 1% that is what we would call evangelical today. And there's certainly, by the way, born again uh, Catholics and undoubtedly Greek Orthodox. But most of them put their hope in their works for salvation. And so consequently, there's no real biblical literacy there. There's no study of the Daniel 8 prophecy. Honestly, they wouldn't have a clue what we're even talking about. And uh, that's also true in Israel, guys. You know what? You know more sitting in here about the Jewish scriptures than the average Jew in Israel today. Do you know that? You know more about Jewish history than the average Jew in Israel today, honestly. Because most Jews are unbelieving Jews that are in Israel today. Uh, and so um, that, that's kind of surprising the first time you go to Israel. These are, um, largely are not believing Jews. And that's exactly, by the way, what God promised would happen. They, they, they would come back, the parable of the virgins. Matthew chapter 25, you had the, the wise virgins that were awake. You had the foolish virgins that, virgins that were asleep. Virgins here is a picture of Israel. Remember, it's not the bride of Christ. We are singular virgin bride. But when you go to Revelation 14, it tells us the 144,000 are virgins, plural. 
So who are the virgins of Matthew 25? They are the Jews, especially at the time of the tribulation. Now, Jesus was very specific. There are some Jews that are asleep, and they're sleeping. And that's a picture of the condition spiritually of the average Jew even today, coming back to the land of their forefathers, exactly as prophesied, but coming back in unbelief, spiritually still asleep. But there's coming a day, as Gail said, Revelation 7 is going to happen. There's going to be an awakening in Israel. And that awakening, I think, is in some way even happening now. Yep, somebody else. Thanks, Jeremy. I think what's interesting is some of the information coming out from some of the missionaries that have uh, uh, spent years uh, in Russia and in Europe and are saying that there is a flood of Jews starting to migrate to Israel now. Russia is losing a considerable amount. And um, I think it's also interesting that I just forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> you were doing good. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, the fact that um, they are migrating back and uh, as part of the end times, I think that God is truly making one new man, which I think is Gentile and Jew. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful marriage between both uh, talents and their heritage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been happening for the last hundred years, really since the end of World War I, the Balfour Declaration. And guys, this is what I mean. We take for granted some of what's happening just in our lifetime, last hundred years. The, the idea that Israel is a nation today is absolutely beyond human understanding, imagination, could not have happened, has never happened nowhere in any other place, in any other time, has any ancient people not been a people for 2,000 years, yet remained a people. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, it's miraculous even, we might say. And, of course, the reason why is God's always had a plan for the Jews. He's temporarily, what does it say in Daniel chapter, I should say at Romans chapter 11, he's temporarily allowed them to go to sleep for what? The salvation of the Gentiles. And when the salvation of the Gentiles has come in, Paul said the time of the Gentiles has come in, he will turn his attention again back to the Jews. And that's what's going to happen one day very soon. Guys, love you very much. We will be right back here next week uh, to continue our study, Book of Revelation. Great discussion tonight. Thank you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I ask you to bless everyone tonight as we leave. God, I pray that uh, this would make us, I pray, to live with greater urgency. And the Lord, that we would live on greater mission for your kingdom, to advance your name, to advance your fame. Lord, help us to be an end times army, of sold out, spirit filled, fully surrendered followers of the Most High God. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. God go with you.